Um, let's look together at Galatians chapter 4 again. Uh, we'll, be, we'll read verses 4, 5, and 6. And uh, we, I want to make one announcement before we get started. Um, along with having uh, Brother Doug pack us next week, we will also have a, a, a guest speaker uh, next Sunday morning. I will speak as well, but uh, my uh, dear brother and good friend to, to not just myself, but, but, but many of us in this church, Michael Holofield, who's a missionary to Russia, is also going to be with us that morning. He's, uh, uh, I, he and I reconnected recently over some things, and, and he's in, in the States for a while, obviously because of the pandemic, and so he was looking for some places in which to, to speak about missions, and this is just one of those... He, he called and asked, and I, I, I was uh, very willing and very eager to say yes to that. So Brother Michael will be with us as well uh, next Sunday morning. He'll talk about missions, and then I'll close the service with uh, some time in the Word. Uh, let's read Galatians chapter 4 now. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now look, the work I attempt to do today um, on this service uh, before Christmas is to establish two points. And so this is literally a sermon with two points. We're supposed to have three or five or whatever. This has two. And the two points I want to make are this. One. The Bethlehem's child, the Christ, was born to save us from the consequences of sin and rebellion. That is redemption. And two, Jesus was born to end the crippling estrangement of humanity by creating the church, the family of God. So it's both for redemption and adoption that Jesus has come. Adoption being a family matter. Being something that is best seen and experienced within the family itself. So both of these are important issues. Look, I know it seems maybe strange to on Christmas talk about hell, but what I'm going to say is this, is hell is, is more pressing than maybe any issue that the church faces because it's everlasting and it is without escape once the pronouncement is made on a life that rejects Christ in finality. If someone goes to death having rejected Christ... There's no potential for parole or probation. It is what it is. That's important. However, the other point should be regarded as paramount because its effect is experienced every day of our lives. The words of David the king demonstrate this duality in the gospel of Jesus, when he writes in Psalm 28, 8, The Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed. The God who is a saving refuge for sinners is one who calls to Himself a people. Individuals are saved in order to become part of the family of God, the church for which Christ suffered and died. We are saved so that we can be united with Him and united with others. Now, and I, I preach this, folks, into a culture that's becoming, it's not just because of COVID. COVID has given us a voice for this. Stay home. Stay away from others. Don't talk to anybody. Don't get close to anybody. 
To be honest with you, everything that we are really not by nature, what we're going through right now, demands. It demands isolation, emotional, and isolation, physical. And we're just not that way. We're not that way even in our wicked nature. We're not that way. God's come to save us from something that we will default to in our brokenness. The gospel message, when believed, saves. Redeems from the imprisonment of sin and unites men and women to each other. Creating the miracle of the church. Now, I know that's also my language and I, I don't I need to apologize for it. But sometimes I need to explain it. I've talked about before how marriage is a miracle. You take two unrelated people, unite them and you create a brand new line that is essentially one family. They were five minutes before. They were unrelated. Now they are forever bound by God. That's a miracle. In fact, it takes to be blunt with you sin to destroy it. It can't be dissolved without offense. In the same way, we see in the church the same miracle. Hundreds, thousands, millions of different lines of men and women brought together miraculously so that we are now one family. We are the family of God with African churches and Chinese churches and Indian churches and churches across the country that we'll never meet. We'll never know these people. But we are in the same family. We are as closely... In fact, I'll say this. I am more closely related to them than I am to my biological brothers. Because the relationship that I have with my brothers ends at our death. It is a temporal and earthly thing. But my relationship with the children of God is everlasting. I will always be your brother and your sister. I'll always be that. We will always be united in that way. From every race and tongue, every nation and continent, in the city and in the country, Jesus beckons men and women to come and live and die together for His glory. The church, founded at Pentecost, was planted in Bethlehem. A homeless child, the Son of God, was born so that the redeemed would have a safe place in a hostile world. Look, Christ came according to Galatians 4, 5, to redeem those who are under the law. So often we paint this in terms of punishment, and it's not illogical or immoral to do so. The infinite punishment required to assuage the fervent rage of God over the sins of the individual life and hell is not inconsequential to the truth or its impact on our lives. Folks, we can't talk about God's love without talking about hell as well. It is an incomplete thought. The gospel is an incomplete message. It is unsaving if we hold things back. Somehow we fell into a wicked trap in which we thought that hell was something that would, that would make people shy away from the truth so we could never talk about it. And what we learned was this, was that, that without telling the entire truth, that we were just making citizens of hell and not citizens of heaven. No one was being saved from a half-truth. Half-truths make half-men and half-women. So we needed to preach the whole thing. God is incredibly wrathful over the sins of men. He is. God has every right to be so. Hell is real. 
And each believer owes a debt to the lost world to tell the truth of God's wrath in its entirety. We owe that debt. We owe that debt not because we owe them anything. We owe that debt because that was done for us. Because if you believe in Christ in a saving way in this room right now, you do so because somebody told you the whole truth. They tell you half the truth or just the sweet parts or just the nice parts. You weren't saved by a babe in the manger. You were saved by a dying Savior who died to save you from hell. So I told you the truth and that's why you're born again. Because you have received the truth, you now owe the truth. You now owe the truth to the world. When our Lord Jesus addresses this subject, His words are not, are not subject to interpretation as much as they are a dire warning of the impending calamity that accompanies unrepentant sins and rebellious lives. I, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, folks, and I am, which makes me a pseudo-professional interpreter of the Scriptures. But what it really does is this. What it really does is this. It sometimes serves as a, as a distraction to my flesh. Because I see the truth and sometimes even I, even I have been tempted in a long ministry to try to tell, in a, tell it in a way that's not quite as, as harsh. So much of the Bible doesn't need interpretation because it's absolutely stated matter-of-factly. When God speaks of hell, He doesn't stutter. When he speaks of, of impending judgment, he is not mincing words. He declares, this is a warning to the world. He says in Matthew 10, 28, to not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Later in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 25, verse 46, he defines the killing and destroying of his precious statement, uh, of his precious statement by saying, Jimmy, the previous statement, by saying uh, that seditious sinners will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So therefore he defines punishment how? Eternally. Eternally. How is the sinner punished in hell? Forever and ever and ever. I would just challenge you this way. If you, don't, if you don't trust what I'm saying, I would challenge you this way. If you are cautious about saying it at Christmas, I would say this to you. If that is true, how can I not say it? If that is true, how can I not say it every time I get up here? How can I ignore a truth that's that powerful, that's that strong? I would say this, no man with a conscience can stand in the pulpit of God and not warn sinners away from the fires of hell. A man that does that hates you, hates the truth, and hates the people of God. Hates you. There's just no way. As the reward is eternal in the everlasting state of man, as heaven is forever, He's given us two diametrically opposed but equal alternatives. They are both what? Eternal. They are both everlasting. Heaven is everlasting. We trust that our time in the everlasting state with God is exactly that, right? We, we are so joyous about, about death and what follows for the believer because we believe that we will be united with Christ 
forever. Those loved ones that we've sent on ahead of us that we know, we trust, we will one day see again. We will see them again in everlasting joy. It never ends. A billion, a trillion years from now, when it comes to an end, if it did, we would be devastated. We are joyous because it will never end. When we've been there a trillion years, it will be just a scratch on the surface of the joy that we have received in being united with God. Everything now is ours. That's eternity. That's what Jesus purchased. That's what the cross promises. But as much as those are the stern and powerful promises of the cross, the opposite is just as stern and just as powerful. The opposite is punishment that never ends. As much as the joy never ends, for those who reject Christ, the punishment never ends. It's never over. It's death that keeps on dying. Judgment that never reaches its climax. The punishment reflects the duration and the intensity of the recompense. Because the reward is so great, the punishment must be equally magnified. Finally, Christ's words in Revelation verse 21, chapter 21, verse 8. After all, the book of Revelation begins with the words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. They're not John's words, they're Jesus' words. He says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The length of the sentence is everlasting and the intensity of punishment is unendurable. Christmas or not, this truth has to be foremost on our minds. Hell is the final and ultimate declaration of the law of of God. And its antidote was born as the God man in Bethlehem. Because hell is so real and so intense and so dark and so full of misery. Christ came to be the remedy. God himself came as a remedy. Our God who fears nothing, who has no reason to fear anything, knew that we should have been terrified by the prospect of hell. And because we were not, He sent His Son. Paul explains in Titus 2.14 that the God-man, the child born in the stable, would give Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. Who are zealous for good works. Unable to extricate ourselves from the discoloring varnish of sinful practice. Paul teaches us in Romans 10.4 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The key that unlocks the door to paradise is the belief of a sinner. The belief of the sinner. In the good news of Jesus Christ. At the end of God's law is the cross. The final statement. The last station in which everything is atoned for. All grievances are mercifully put away. And the debt finally paid. What we cannot do on our own. Christ does for us. 
to spare us the penalty of eternal damnation. The message of Christmas has always been redemption because the truth of Christ is that our God is a God of salvation. And to God the Lord belongs deliverances from death. The mission of the church is to evangelize the world to preserve souls from the decimation of hell and to adore Christ by expounding the vital truth that Jesus and only Jesus saves men and women from their sins. Look, folks, with relish as a church, we do this. It's not only the need of the world, just the much, I mean, it's not the only need of the world, but it's the most pressing. We ought to begin that way. What's the greatest need of the world at Christmas right now? A Savior. It's not political peace. It's not financial provision. It's not emotional encouragement. Those things are important. The Bible talks about those things. But what's most important is this. Is that men and women today will die and go to hell. Today. Now some other day. Men and women on Christmas Day will breathe their last and wake up in torment. And only the church has the answer to that tragedy. Only the church has the mandate from God to do something about it. The finished work of Christ demands it. The blood of the martyrs demands it. The truth of the gospel demands it. And to be honest with you, to be honest with you, our hearts demand it. Our hearts, our new hearts demand that we do something about it. Sin has two impacts on our lives. Eternal suffering in hell and temporal suffering because of the consequences of our deeds. We understand that, right? We, we understand both of those. We understand an emotional need and we also understand a judicial need, don't we? Well, it's part of propitiation. Part of what Christ Jesus did for us. He both met the judicial requirements of the law and he, he also sealed the breach between us and God. God's offended in an everlasting way. And because of the death of Christ Jesus, both what is required under the law and what's required to restore the heart of God, both of those things are dealt with on Calvary. So we understand that sin can have multiple bearings upon our lives. One is judicial. One is the fact that we owe God restitution. And the restitution that either come from the cross or come in hell. One or the other. But the other one is this, is that emotionally speaking, there's damage from sin. Here's the difference, is that the, emotional, the emotional damage is ours. With sin comes misery. With the fallen nature, the brokenness of souls and spirits, and the impact on humanity is one of lifelong alienation and despair. And I think that's one of those things that's very, very hard. I think it's sometimes hard for us. Let me explain why in just a moment. The reason why it's so hard for us is that we can fall into this kind of mealy-mouthed, you know, weaned on pickle juice kind of Christianity where we think that the lost are out there just living it up. And we're the ones that are hurting. My worst day in Christ is more joyous than my best day ever was without Him. The very worst day that I've ever had as a pastor, and there have been some lean, hard times, is still better than any day I ever spent living in sin. We have to acknowledge that. The fact of the matter is this, is that we may not have what the world has, but we have something the world can never have. 
We have something they can't purchase. They may have all the money in the world. They may live a certain way that we all kind of have been conditioned in our culture to be jealous of. But the reality is this, is that I know and you know deep, deep down that they're suffering. That sin is suffering. And that given enough time, it always turns wrong, doesn't it? When, the, when they're, they're in their initial shallow happiness is over, what do they have left over? Shame and misery and consequences. All those things God came to save us from. We are souls in need of solace. And the gospel is the comfort for our spirit. As David writes in Psalm 38, verse 9, he says, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. And the antidote... Uh, the antidote to our isolation is this truth of God. In this verse, Christ acknowledges by David that he understands the plight of those who are subject to the wickedness of this world. Look, a significant portion of our kind of societal angst finds its voice at Christmas. I, I think the reason maybe, maybe talk about this idea of alienation and loneliness and isolation is because Christmas is one of the times when it seems to be magnified just a little bit. Now look, for our, our culture, Christmas depression is one of the kind of collective myths. And if you feel a little blue at Christmas, please forgive me for this part. In actuality, studies reveal that all negative indicators of mental health, emergency room visits, uh, suicide attempts, and in, in respect, completions actually are slightly reduced during a period before and act, after Christmas. We actually, by all the indicators, seem to be a little bit happier at Christmas than we are the rest of the time. It doesn't mean we're joyous the rest of the time. It means we're pretty miserable all the time as a people. It might actually get a little bit better at Christmas. Now, Dr. Randy Hilliard, a red healthcare professional studying Christmas trends, wrote this. He said, maybe depression doesn't increase before Christmas because people use their best coping strategies to get through the holiday. And maybe there's a little Christmas magic after all. I could have left that last part off, but it was just kind of sweet-sounding. So I kept it. Maybe there is a little something to it after all. Maybe we all individually decide, you know what? I've been depressed for 11 months. Maybe I'll try Christmas. Maybe I'll try December. Now, I understand for a lot of us, in my family in particular, in particular, Christmas is a time in which we mourn a little bit at loss. When people who have always been there are suddenly not there. And Christmas doesn't feel the same way anymore. I have total understanding for that. And there's great sympathy in my heart for that because I, we, I've been dealing with this since I was a child. Christmas can be a time of mourning for a lot of us. I understand that. I totally understand that. The Lord, our God, understood from the dawning moments of creation that, ha that humanity is not good when living in segregation and separation or in quarantine, even if it's our own choice to do so. And he spoke directly to it in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The Lord addressed the church, established it in truth as a guiding principle and promised that he would never leave us. Look, some of us make this claim. Many of us will claim that it's a good thing for them to be alone. That they choose this lifestyle. The reality that it indicates a darker, incomplete, and desperate aspect of our broken personalities. Now we interject this. Part of this isn't really research. Some of that is just me, me looking on Facebook. 
Because people, Brother Kyle, are always putting stuff like that on Facebook, aren't they? They're just done with people and they're going to save themselves. I'm like, why don't you tell everybody? Why don't you put it on Facebook? So you're really done with everybody and you want everybody to know that you are done with them. So in an antisocial way, you made a very social comment. The reality is this is that even in desperate and goofy things like that, we really understand that we need people. Deep, deep down, we understand that when we're alone, hey, during the quarantine, I don't mean what we're going, what's going on now. I mean from March to whenever we started to let up a little bit just because. Did anybody here start to lose it just a little bit? All their hands are supposed to go up right now, but they're not. I don't know why. Yes, I talked to some of you. You were all losing it a little bit. Some of you were very truthful about it. We don't do isolation very well. And we love our families. But being stuck in that house with them for very long, Joseph, how'd it go? Fantastic, wasn't it? The best. The father says, in public. In public. Lock that little house. You know, get on each other's nerves. We need people. We need people. God gave us the church because we need people. And the more antisocial, the more we think we don't need them, the more what we're really saying is we actually really do need them. Desperately need them. We're just not made for that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about public policy right now, folks. I'm just commenting, biblically speaking, that God's very clear. We don't do alone. And that whenever we are by ourselves, it needs to be for very short durations. Because we need each other. It brings out that darker, incomplete, and desperate aspect of our broken personalities. Psalmist writes in Psalm 68, verse 6, God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. When we're rebellious, we always seek the parched land. When we're moving away from the church, we always go out into the desert. Into the parched land. But where is the gospel practiced? Among God's people. I say this for the church. Because there are tons of people in the church who think they can have Jesus and not have the church. Why? I'll tell you here in just a second. Give me just a sec. Um, choosing alienation instead of the benefits of the church is a rejection of the Lord's stated plan for the believer. Because some people who claim to be part of the body of Christ want to do this. They think the church is just too messy. And so what do they do? I don't have anything to do with the church anymore. They think they can have Jesus and no church. The Lord teaches us in Genesis 2.18 that it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The created nature of humanity is to have an inherent desire to band together, to meet our needs for protection and provision, and to depend upon each other for emotional support. We're held back by sensitivity and fear. Do you know why people walk away from the church? You want the truth? Because we're just too sensitive. Too sensitive. And I'll tell you something else. Let me tell you something really, really deep about this. And this is the hard part. I thought I was more sensitive at 30. No, I'm way more sensitive at 52. I can't imagine what we're like. Here's the reality. The older we get, the more mature we're supposed to be. In fact, more often than not, the more sensitive we are about stuff. The more easily we offended we are. Why do people walk away from the church? Because it's just too doggone easily offended. That's how come they never really tell you why. Because it's no egregious thing. It's something that if you pronounce it in the light, guess what? It doesn't sound important. It doesn't sound consequential. It sounds overtly sensitive. 
That's what it sounds like. So one of the things that we have to get over a little bit in this world is ourselves, isn't it? We've got to get over being so sensitive. And we've got to get over fear. Because I think our sensitivity fosters a devilish kind of fear. And what I mean is this, very, very simply. Is that because we've been hurt before, we have a fear of what? Of getting hurt. What's the best way to not get hurt? What's the best way to not get hurt? Don't let anybody close. Don't move anybody in. Don't let anybody be in your heart. Don't let anybody be in your life. Stay in your hovel as far away from everybody as possible. Talk to nobody. Interact with no one. Deny the effect of the gospel to govern your life. And you'll guarantee you won't offend yourself. You won't be offended. Because you have no interactions. The reality of the church is this, is that we put ourselves out there. And sometimes it just doesn't work out. And sometimes people say mean stuff. And sometimes even people we really, really care about say mean stuff. You know why they do? Because they're just like us. They're broken and they're messed up. We can't be afraid of that. We can't be overtly sensitive. Because God called us to be a part of this. To be a family. And like it or not, you know what you don't do? You just don't walk away from family, do you? Don't, even when you want to. You may say that kind of stuff, and we may even think that kind of stuff, but you don't do it. Because it's supposed to matter. Moses urges us, urges us giving us power by writing in Deuteronomy 31.16, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes before you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Find emotional courage, the will to stay and not to go. Much of the Bible's truth demands that we be reliant on the companionship of Christ, but also dependent upon the fulfillment of God's people. He declares in Isaiah 41 verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Throughout this entire interaction with others, throughout this life in the church that's supposed to be the joy of our very existence, through all of that, He promises what? That He's going to uphold us with the righteous right hand. That it may be tough sometimes, because it's tough being in the family, isn't it? You don't always get along and sometimes you fight. And sometimes the fights feel like they're to the death. But the reality is we don't give up because we realize the goal matters. I don't give up on being a parent. You don't give up on, on, on being, a, on being a, a child because it matters. Because it really matters. As the children of Christ adopted into His family receive from the Lord the benefits and joys associated with being His legitimate offspring... And beloved family. Jesus provides for us emotionally and morally. But he does so collectively by way of the church family. And intimate, meaningful relationships. We come here because we get that. Intimate, meaningful relationships. Paul's declarations in Galatians 4.5 is, However, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Not members. Sons. And we are adopted sons of the living God. That makes us all what? Brothers and sisters. Eternally. As believers, you and I are members of the real, vital, and everlasting family of God. To meet together in Christ for worship, for prayer, for teaching, for joy and labor. Is to demonstrate the pedigree that Jesus suffered to originate. Why should we stay here? Why should we build this? 
Because Jesus died to make it happen. Because the debt we owe isn't just for our individual, to be honest with you, selfish redemption. The debt that we owe Christ is for the building of the church. That the church matters. To demonstrate the pedigree that Jesus suffered to originate and to declare the truth of the gospel for the world. Our love demonstrates our family love. Here today and from this point forward, our family love here right now demonstrates the truth of the saving message of Jesus. Our lives are part of the gospel message that we preach. And God has called us to live them together as the body of Christ. Let's stand together and pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach your word, Father God. I pray that I've preached it rightly, Father God. I pray that I've preached everything you called me to preach, Father, and that I've left nothing out. And Father God, I pray, Lord, that today someone has heard this message, Father God, all of us have. And we realize that impact of the gospel that was, God, that was planted there at Bethlehem. Father God, that, that, that hell would not be a reality for us any longer, even though we are sinners. That to say, make that declaration, I am a sinner saved by grace can be a reality for my life. That hell is for me and for God's people past. A warning, Father God, and a sign, a portent, that we would go forth and preach the gospel to save others from the fires of hell, Father God, but not something we have to fear any longer. We fear for others who, like ourselves, Father God, did not know to fear. So, Father God, I pray for that and I thank you for that, Father God. I thank you, Lord, for the gift of the gospel that saves men's souls. I thank you for the completed work of Jesus on the cross, Father God, that enables us all to be saved. And I thank you now, Father God, for us, that, that we can come together as a church. But more than anything, Father God, I thank you for that church as well. That you have the cure, Father God, to isolation and loneliness. And we shouldn't turn our noses up at it. We shouldn't think that somehow we can make it without it because we cannot, Father. We will not make it without each other. We will not, Father God, go astray. Because that's all it is, Father God. When I walk away from the church, all I've done is gone astray. There's not a path out there for a single man or a single woman, Father God, to walk in which they bring you honor and glory. The only honor to glory in you, Father God, comes through the church. So, Father God, I pray, Lord, in this new year, as we, as we Father God, approach it so quickly, that, God, you would call men and women who are once part of your, of, of your body, Father God, to repentance, Father. And they would be restored back to the body of Christ, Father. So that they, Lord, can, can walk as we do, Lord. Forward, Father. Armed with the truth of the gospel. Proclaiming it to anyone who will hear, Father God. Reaping the benefits, Father God, of seeing the gospel realized in our lives. We love you, Father. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.